And God, that we would be removed from all the distractions, especially at this busy time of year. That we would be content to just rest in your presence and just be here. And Father, I just pray now that as we worship you, that your joy would permeate this place. That your peace would be here. That your love would be here in, a, in an amazing way. And God, that you would now take the living word of God. This is your word. Minus your word, I have nothing to say. But your word has all things, all truth. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts through your living word today. That we would be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today we're going to be completing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And fittingly, we're going to be talking about love. Love. And of course, when we think about Christmas, love can be uppermost in our mind because it's a season of love and joy and peace, a season of giving. And we hear a lot of things about the word love. Love has been called the mark of a Christian. The Bible says they will know we are Christians. What? By our activities, by our big services, by our churches, by, no. They will know we're Christians by our love. Love. But not just any kind of love will do. It's only a special love. It's a, it's a higher love that Jesus brought that, and pours out to those of us and through us. And that kind of love can actually transform the world. It changes the world. Today we're going to look at higher love. And I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew, the fifth chapter, it's on page 787 in the Bible in the rack in front of you, or it'll be also be on the projection. Matthew 5, we're going to look at verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, may sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Looking at some background, it's important again to look at some background so we understand the context in which Jesus was teaching about love. The scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law, Religious leaders back then were very familiar with certain passages of Scripture. There were Proverbs, and one in particular that, that Jesus refers to it and quotes is Leviticus 19, 17 to 18. It says, love your enemies, love your enemies. And they consciously or unconsciously had tried to make this command easier to obey. Now, 
the thing that we usually discover about human nature, if God gives us a, a guideline and something that's hard, we're going to try to find a way to kind of make it easier. Okay? And they decided they were going to make this command easier. So there are ways to make loving easier, and they were really good at it. The first way they did that was to redefine neighbor, redefine neighbor. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, it says, Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what the religious people of that day did is they twisted the Old Testament command to love God and neighbor by just redefining neighbor. That's pretty good to do. The neighbor was one of my people. It was a fellow Jew. It was my own kith and kin, someone who belonged to their race or their religion. And since I'm supposed to love only my neighbor, and I can make a list of all those people, I think it's okay then to hate my enemy. And they confirmed their racial prejudice with rationalization. They thought since their ancestors had fought and destroyed Canaanites, which were their enemies, they could hate their enemies as well. And the psalmist David, of course, writes about love for God and hate for God's enemies. And they thought, we can do the same. But these religious leaders were confusing the institutional with the personal. They were trying to make love easier by redefining neighbor and also by redefining enemy. Enemy. The enemy. Who, were, who was their enemy? The wars of Israel were commanded by God to stamp out idolatry and horrible sin. Hatred for God's enemies, not ours in the Psalms, because David loved God so much he hated sin. And sometimes we confuse with the fact that God hates sin. Why does God hate sin so much? Because it's destructive. When we commit sin and live in sin, it destroys our lives, it destroys relationships, it can destroy a whole nation. So it says God hates sin. But then we put all the people in the category, which are all of us actually, because we all sin, that we hate sinners or we hate people that are enemies of God. And so we have this love-hate relationship with we love God, we love our neighbor, but those Sinners, those people out there. And they had confused sinners with sin. So they, they basically redefined neighbor and they redefined enemy and made people the enemy. We don't do that at all, do we, today? No. Then they redefined love. This is a, this is a good way to go, redefined love. What they did is they lowered the bar. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Lowered the bar. Make love easier. So you define love as a certain, in a certain way that makes it easy to love. So we redefine our neighbor, redefine the enemy, and redefine love. And we measure up great. How do we try to make love easier? Think about it for a minute. How do we look at this and we say, well, I'm, I, I think I follow this, these words of Jesus. Uh, we might ask, who do we have to love? Okay. Who do we have to love? Who do we have to love? And, and because there are certain people we don't get along with and we don't like, so we just avoid them, okay? That's a great way to avoid fulfilling this commandment. Just, just avoid people. We, they're difficult. Stay around people we know, people we're comfortable with, and then we don't have to deal with our enemy. Just avoid the enemy. Avoid enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. 
Now let's define what love means in Jesus' terms. Now, what kind of love are we talking about? Now, first, when we look at love according to popular culture, we find certain characteristics about love. We think about love, and you look at the love pop, pop songs and love and R&B, all the things, or country, if you listen to country. Um, love, there's always love involved in popular culture. You look at movies today, it's all about love. Hallmark especially, but that's, that's another thing. I always come out at the end of the movie and say, have they kissed yet? Because that means it's the end of the Hallmark movie, but that's okay. Love according to popular culture. When we think about love today, we think mostly about feelings or emotions or warm fuzzies. It's uncontrolled or uncontrollable. So we say, I fell in love. It's like it's out of my control. I fell in love, okay? There's, it's like this passive thing that controls us. I fell in love. So we think about that. Now, love according to Jesus is a lot different. Love according to the Bible. Love is an act of the will. Love is an act of the will. It's actions, not feelings. Love is a decision. I choose to love. I choose to love. Now, the heart is involved, but more than an act of the will, more than heart feelings. Love is not primarily something we feel. It's something we do. It's something we do. Feelings come and go, but feelings can't rule our love relationships. Let's think about dating and romance for a minute. Dating and romance. In, in ancient societies, when this was written, dating was unheard of. Okay? Dating was unheard of. You didn't play the field. You weren't out there looking for Mr. Right or Miss Perfect. They would have been very confused with speed dating. They had been totally oblivious to internet dating. This was, or just dating in, in, in period. It was just crazy. It'd be a mystery to them. Marriages for the largest part of human history, and I know this is hard for us to understand because we think we're in civilization today. Marriages, except in recent history, used to be arranged by the parents, sometimes shortly after the child was born. Okay, so you have a baby here, and your your friend and neighbor has a baby, and you, you have a lot in common. You say, you say okay, let's let's arrange this. And when they get to be marriageable age, they're going to be married. We're going what? That happened a lot. Marriages. If you liked their family, they were of similar culture, socioeconomic status, belief systems, race, and religion. Arranged marriages were common until recently. And I know there are parents here that would love to reinstitute that practice. Sorry, it's not going to happen, but that's just the way it was. Many times the bride and groom would meet for the first time at their wedding. Talk about an adjustment. I mean, it's an adjustment enough when you get married. If you've never met, it's, yeah, it'd be, it'd be crazy. But the concept was this. This was the concept. The action of commitment and love brought emotions and feelings of love. In other words, there's a, there's a commitment of love and the relationship, and afterward, there were the feelings of love. Now, we get it totally different. We've got to feel we're in love. We've got to feel the love. And, you know, sometimes it works great. Sometimes not so much. That was the love that we're talking about. Action of commit. It's commitment. How many of you have seen or participated in or watched the movie or the musical, Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. 
It's a great, it's a great story. And of course, one of the biggest parts of the story, um, the main characters are Jewish and the daughter who is supposed to marry within the family falls in love with, of all things, a Russian soldier. A Russian soldier. This is the first known incident that we know of Russian collusion. But that's a, that's a different thing. But she fell in love with somebody that was not in her category or race or religion, anything. And you just didn't do that. Now, I'm glad my parents did not arrange my marriage. My parents had some weird ideas. They'd say, don't you, don't you think she would do, you know, this, you know, my mom especially tried to connect me with people. And I said, mom, please, just leave me alone. Leave me alone. God has somebody for me. And of course, there she is, my wife. Took a while to find her, but that was it. But the arranged marriage thing. Now, sh should I say we should return to arranged marriages? No. The point is, love feelings follow love action. Love feelings follow love action. And love action that he's talking about here is agape love or selfless love. And in 1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue only, but with actions and in truth. So love is what's laid out for us as Jesus' love. And it's an action. It's a, it's a verb. It's something that we do. Feelings come. Feelings go. But love, this love that Jesus brought was love of action. Now, what does this love do? What does this love, what are we to do with this love? This is where it gets sticky because it gets a little crazy. We can love people that love us, but he says, love our enemies as we love our best friends. Love our enemies as we love our best friends. Now, that, that's very foreign. And in practice, the Jewish leaders and the people of that day practiced that to a degree. But Jesus said, you've heard this, but let me tell you what it's supposed to be. Unconditional love. There was an eight-year-old boy who had just heard about God's love for people. So he asked him, his dad, he said, Daddy, how does God love us? And his father said, God loves us with an unconditional love. Unconditional. Well, that's a big word for an eight-year-old. So he thought for a moment, he said, what is unconditional love? So the father thought for a moment, he said, do you remember the two boys who used to live next door to us and had that cute little puppy they got for Christmas? He said, yes. He said, do you remember how they used to tease it and throw rocks at it and hit it with sticks and sometimes kick it? Yeah, I remember that. He said, do you also remember that the puppy always came to them and wagged his tail and licked their face and always loved them. No matter what they did, it always, always loved them. He said, yeah. He said, well, that puppy had unconditional love for those two boys. They didn't deserve his love for them because they were mean to him, but he loved them anyway, no matter what was done. Then the father said this. He said, God's love for us is this also. It's unconditional People threw rocks at his son, Jesus. They hit him with sticks. They even killed him. But Jesus loved them anyway. That is unconditional love. Loving our enemies. Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? I'm not talking in 
some abstract nation or country like Islamic terrorists or country with which we are at war. Who is your personal enemy? Maybe you don't have any. You'd be awesome if you don't have any enemies. But who is your personal enemy? Who is someone who mistreats you, abuses you, treats you unfairly? Who is it that does not treat you with the respect that you deserve? Maybe it's a parent, a child, a husband or wife. Could be a boss who treats you unfairly or fired you unjustly. Might be a teacher who misgrades your paper or test. Might be a coach who won't give you a chance or won't give your kid a chance. To, and that's, you see that as an enemy. It might be an ex-friend or ex-spouse who wronged you. A competitor or a, for a job or position. Might be a brother or sister who's jealous of what you have or what they don't like about your Christian faith. Maybe it's a student in your class who is mean to you or who bullies you for no good reason. Maybe it's a neighbor who has a dog who barks incessantly. A man received a phone call one night at 3 a.m. from his neighbor to tell him his barking dog was keeping them awake. He called his neighbor back at 3 a.m. the next morning and said, I don't have a dog. That's a joke. <laughs> I can see that went well. Okay. Don't, don't do that. Okay. Who is my enemy? Anyone who intentionally seeks my harm is my enemy. The Bible says, if possible, be at all, peace with all men. Sometimes it's not possible. And you, say, and you may say, I don't have any enemies. Well, if you, if you draw a line, over here you have friends and here you have enemies. Okay? And you put people on that continuum between enemies and friends, and you treat people along that continuum, you relate to them in different ways, and he says, no matter, they may be a friend, they may be an enemy, or they may be somewhere in between, he said, love everybody as you love yourself, as you love your brother. Love everybody along that spectrum. Now, we might say, I can't. I, I just can't do that. Good, good. It's good if we admit what we cannot do. Okay, that's, that's the beginning of finding solutions. Because most of us would probably say, I don't think I can love this person. Maybe an enemy from past. Maybe someone who's tormenting you in the present. Say, I cannot find it in myself to love them. Good. Take the next line. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Whoa. Pray for those who persecute you. What happens when we pray for an enemy? What happens? Those who persecute us. As an act of will, in obedience to God, we intercede and we pray for them. What happens? Some of you know you've done this. What happens? Intercession is the summit of Christian love. And Bonhoeffer wrote this. This is in your notes. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. We stand by their side of the enemy, and we plead for them by God. Frederick Buhner 
writes, moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of the love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him. Whoa. And impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. Said, he says, we must not therefore wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. Whoa. Pray before we're conscious of loving Jesus prayed for his executioners while they were driving the nails in his hands. And the grammatical structure, when it says, he says, it's, it's, basically it says, Father, forgive them. They not, do not know what they're doing. It's in the imperfect tense, which means he was praying it continually and ongoing in an ongoing way. He was praying and repeating, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Jesus did that. That was his love. While they were crucifying him, causing pain, he was praying for them. And honestly, usually we're so isolated from an enemy, our enemy, whoever it is, the only way we can love them is to pray for them. You may not be able to contact them personally. We may have to just pray for them. The only action possible is prayer. Many times they are so hostile or separated from us that our only access to them is through God. It's the only way we can access them. They won't let you near them. Wow. That's what happens. Pray. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. And verse 45 says, imitate God's example. Imitate God's example. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Blessings. God gives us blessings and demonstrates his love to the evil and the good, to the righteous and the unrighteous. How people treat us is irrelevant. He loves regardless People's response does not determine God's actions. God's love is constant and unconditional. Higher love. God loves, period. And then Jesus asks, why do you place conditions on your love? Anybody can love those who love them. God's example that we're to follow is a love that flows from us, and it's good regardless of the response or the reaction. That is unconditional love. That's not letting anyone else's attitude or action or words or deeds or abuse affect how we love. We're not asked to love our enemy's deeds. Just our enemy, not what he does, just him or her. And you say, is that all? (laughs) Our world practices retaliation and revenge. The way of our world is recompense or payback. That's what we do. And then fourthly, Jesus says, be perfect. No big deal. Just just be perfect. Right. Perfect. We were the perfect couple. Then we got married. 
I was a perfect 10, then I had a baby. This was a perfect day, and then you started preaching. I know, that's how it happened. Right, be perfect. Right. Perfectionists love this verse. Perfectionists love this verse. A perfectionist, you know what my definition of a perfectionist is? A perfectionist is a person who takes great pains and gives them to other people. Takes great pains, gives them to other people. Be perfect. Now, let's talk about this word perfect because we need some context for the word perfect. Barclay writes this. He said, the Greek word for perfect is teleos. It has nothing to do with what we might call abstract, philosophical, metaphysical perfection. A man, this is about a man who has reached full-grown maturity as opposed to a teenager or a childhood. Boy. The, the Greek idea of perfection is functional, a thing that is perfect if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was planned, designed, and made. Perfect is, as is defined, mature. It fills the purpose for which it was created. Mature fulfills the purpose for which it was created. We used to have a 1990 Ford Aerostar van, minivan. Anybody else have a Ford Aerostar popular van? Yeah. One day a headlight burned out. U.S. engineers have designed cars to make the simplest task, like changing a headlight, so difficult that we have to bring it to the dealership. And I thought, you know, I've, I've changed headlights before. How hard can this be? So I took off the grill. Yeah. I removed the battery. I removed the air cleaner. And with all that done, then I needed to take off the headlamp cover. Now I could have access to the headlamp cover. But I discovered that the headlamp cover was held on by a different kind of bolt that I'd never seen before. I was used to Phillips, flathead, some kind of bolt thing. This thing was shaped like a starburst. I said, whose idea was this? It's ridiculous. Who carries these things? I needed a special screwdriver just for the headlight cover. And of course, now my van's in pieces, so I had to find a way to drive to the auto parts store to find that specific screwdriver for that specific purpose that would fit that bolt exactly. So I got one. I turned the screw and accomplished my task. Now, in the New Testament Greek sense, that screwdriver that I bought was teleos. It was perfect because it exactly fulfilled the purpose for which it was manufactured and purchased. It was made to do a specific job, and I think they colluded with Ford. I don't know. But it was made for that purpose. And when I used it for that purpose, it was teleos. It was perfect. It was for the function it was created. It fulfilled that. So when we talk about being teleos or perfect, we have to ask, for what purpose was mankind created? Why were we created? We were created in the image of God to carry out the purposes of God, which is unconditional love and goodwill. And when we function godlike, we are fulfilling our purpose, godlike 
and perfect, complete, fulfilled, mature. I mean, we all know that we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. But we can fulfill this part of that by being mature and fulfilling the purpose for which God created us. That's what this means, by function. And what is that function? It's love. It's a, it's a higher love. It's called loving not only our friends, it's loving our enemies. There's another dimension of this higher love. Augsburger writes, perfect is to be seen in this context of love. His perfect love is without discrimination, without discrimination. And you say, impossible, impossible. I can't love my enemies. I can't pray for my persecutors. I especially can't imitate God with that kind of love. And if you just said that in your mind and you're going, good, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same place. The first beatitude at the beginning of this chapter, our series is false, says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which basically says we need God. We need God. We, we can't do it on our own. We need God. And when we see our need, our dependence, then we begin to rely on God. Jesus began chapter 5 with need, and he ends with an incredible demand, demands that only he can fulfill in and through us. It's his power that can give us the compassion and passion to pray for our enemies, to actually love our enemies. This, this is supernatural stuff. We cannot do this in human strength, and the sooner we realize that, the better off we'll be where we realize I can't, but he can. He can. It's like father, like son. It becomes part of our nature. We are like father and like son. Verse 45 says, in order that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Sons, just like our father. The son of God is a godlike person. So love, love, it's a higher love. Love our enemies, pray for those who abuse us, imitate God's example, be perfect, or fulfill the purpose for which you were created. It's called love, higher love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have put before us the impossible that only you can do in and through us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to dwell in us. You sent Jesus, Emmanuel, to be here among us. And you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we could be transformed and changed and used of you. And I pray, God, that during this season especially that that we would see supernaturally your love in us. There's so much conflict, so much, so much bitterness, there's so much hatred, there's so much everything. And we may have people that we consider enemies, and they may be our enemies, but you've called us to pray in love. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, in us, with us, would accomplish that in the name of Jesus. Let's stand, shall we?